I want to just first begin by encouraging us that if you're going through something in your life and there is a struggle and there is a real battle that's going on, I really feel this morning that God wants to give us an assurance of victory. Amen. And I, I want to just encourage you, if you're really struggling with some area in your life, could be a bad news, could be a situation, I really believe that God wants to give you a breakthrough. And if you just reach out to Him today and put your trust in His name, His name shall overcome. Amen. Well, this weekend, I want to talk about um, essentially the parable of the minas, or sometimes known as the parable of the pounds. And I call this a parable based on true events. Now, before I begin, I want to give us a little preamble. And I want to begin by stating something very simple and yet really important for us to understand and comprehend as Christians in regards to our interpretation of Scriptures. And that is this, that when we read Scriptures, it has to always be tentatively final. What does it mean to be tentatively? Tentatively final. Tentatively final essentially means this, that the first time you read a passage or you read a scripture, we must seek to immediately obey the reading of God's Word. So when you read a passage and it says, you know, do something, and we are convicted by that Word, then what we need to do immediately is to obey the Word of God. We cannot afford to wait for yet another insight into that passage, you know, or that phrase, or an understanding of the Word, or the Greek grammar, or the lexicon or a technicality before obedience is offered. Obedience must be offered immediately when we read a passage and our hearts are convicted. Amen. But as we continue to walk with God, as we continue to grow in the Lord in our faith, we will discover that the interpretation of Scriptures is often coloured by our background, our culture, our bringing, and maybe some kind of a default inference. Amen. In fact, our prevailing cultural uh, lenses will often skew a passage of Scripture in a completely different direction from whence the Lord actually intended it to be directed towards. In fact, that is what I want to examine today. I believe particularly when it comes to the parable of the pounds or the parable of the minas, we have all misread this parable. And one of the primary perspectives that we have adopted in viewing this parable is to think that this parable, this parable of the pounds is talking about the stewardship of resources. And the reason we often think about this is because we are all very much material-focused. We are resource-centric and viewing everything. So when we read this parable, our focus, our, we immediately zero in on the pounds that has been given to the servants and how they steward those pounds. Amen? And who's to blame? Because we all are essentially rooted in a capitalistic worldview. Amen? Now, I hope to help us see this parable in a completely different light this weekend. I want to begin by reading this parable itself to us. So turn with me to Luke chapter 19, and we're going to read verse 11 all the way to verse 7, and may the Lord bless the reading of His Word. Amen? In verse 11, it says, Now, as they heard these things, He spoke another parable, because they were near Jerusalem, and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Therefore, He said, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So he called ten of his servants, delivered to them ten minas, and said to them, Do business till I come. Now his citizens heard, hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. And so it was that when he returned, having received the kingdom, he then commanded these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, and he might know how much every man had gained by trading. 
Then came the first saying, Master, your minna has earned 10 minas. And he said to them, Well done, good servant, because you were faithful in a very little, have authority over 10 cities. And the second came saying, Master, your minna has earned five minas. Likewise, he said to him, You also be over five cities. Then another came saying, Master, here is your minna, which I've kept put away in a handkerchief, for I feared you because you are an austere man. You collect what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, Out of your own mouth I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man collecting what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank that at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those uh, who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to him who has ten minas. But they said to him, Master, he has ten minas. For I say to you that to everyone who has will be given, and from him who does not have even what he has will be taken away from him. Now bring here those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. Amen. Now, I want to give us four points this weekend. The first is this, okay? In understanding this parable, we always start with this, and I believe that we have begun with a wrong presupposition. Luke chapter 19, verse 11, the second part of it says this, because he was near, Jesus was near Jerusalem, and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Now, the premise of Jesus telling this parable is given to us here. Jesus told this parable because the people were in expectation of something, and that which they're expecting is wrong. It's misguided. They were expecting the kingdom of God to appear at that moment, to literally manifest itself. In other words, these were apocalyptic enthusiasts, okay, I call them, and the whole situation drips with apocalyptic overtones, and Jesus told this uh, parable specifically to diffuse these expectations. You see, 2,000 years have passed since the telling of this parable. But today, we still do not lack apocalyptic enthusiasts, right, in the church. And you know, whenever the subject matter, uh, you know, is raised about the end times or about eschatology, I want to assure you this, attendance will rise, views will increase, you know, uh, followership will hike. And it is understandable, we are all fascinated, you know, about the end times. And I think that there is such enthusiasm and, you know, because the reasons are, are clear. And the reasons aren't so different from the days when Jesus was talking to these people. You see, when the end of the ages comes, it will usher in vindication. Usher in reprieve, Jesus will return, the kingdom of God will be manifested, and what we will see is manifested deliverance and salvation. The world and all that stands against the Lord will crumble. Every tongue that raises itself against Christ will be defeated. The work will be completed, and we Christians will stand triumphant, justified in our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, which Christian doesn't like that? I like that. I can't wait for that day to come. But, and for those who are listening to Christ in the days of Jesus, they were expecting Jesus to come and overthrow the Romans and to restore Israel its independence. It meant liberation, self-rule, vindication. And this is exactly what we expect today, to finally show the world, hey, we are right, you are wrong. Amen. 
You know, it represents escape from our responsibilities and vindication. You know, our struggles in this world would have ceased. We don't have to witness anymore. We don't have to contend for the faith. All the persecution is going to be ended. Jesus Christ, the truth Himself, will manifest Himself and all the world shall see. Amen. Not too long ago, we were just praying that every tongue will, you know, every tongue will confess and every knee will bow. We all can't wait for that day to happen. Amen. And so who doesn't love a good apocalyptic message? Because it means that the end is near, just one final stretch and we'll be vindicated. And yet we are now led by Jesus in the telling of this parable precisely to dispel this mindset. Jesus told this parable to tell us, his followers, stop thinking like that. This parable is not an apocalyptic parable speaking about the end of the ages. In fact, I want to suggest to you that this parable tells us the exact opposite. End is not coming yet. Amen? Now, the second point I want to bring out is the grammatical significance of what is being said, okay? In Luke chapter 19, verse 13, it says this, So he called ten of his servants, delivered to them ten minutes or ten pounds, and said to them, Do business till I come. Now, this little word there, till or until, really has great significance as to how we interpret and read this parable. Now, in the Greek, this word is here, is the word enho. Now, this is not a very often used Greek expression, and there's actually several ways in which to translate it. The first way, of course, is how most of our English translations have taken it, to mean, and they have translated is it to until, until, okay? But the second way to translate this word is because. So instead of until, it is because. And the third way is the literal meaning of enho, which means in which. So let's look at how these three words then translate it into. If you follow the word until, then of course it says, do business until I come. But if you follow the other two ways, then it is this, do business because I'm coming back. Or do business in a way in which I am coming back. Now, the last two ways of rendering this translation basically reads very different from the way our English Bibles have translated this word. When you consider this, do business until I come, the emphasis is on the time, until. And the connotation is that we have a limited amount of time, so let's go out, do business, and make as much as we can. Let's increase, let's multiply. We are looking at profitability that we can return to the master when he comes back. But if you read it the other two ways, do business in a way in which I am coming back or do business because I'm coming back, then the emphasis is very different. The focus now is on how we conduct ourselves, how we go about doing business in His absence. I want to suggest to you that the, the two ways, this two ways of, of translating this is actually much more accurate. Because when you look at the commendation that the Master gives at the end of it, the commendation is not about success. Jesus in the parable did not say, good servant, uh, you have been successful. But Jesus in the parable said, good servants, you have been faithful. Amen? And this is where the focus is really on conduct. Faithfulness is never to do about profitability. It's got to do with how we conduct our lives. Okay, I'll come back to this a little bit more later on. Now, the third thing I want to point out is that this whole parable is rooted in actual events. You see, the primary storyline in this parable speaks about a nobleman who went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom. Now, the hearers of this parable in the days of Jesus, the moment they heard this parable, would immediately identify the parable to actual events that took place in the days of Jesus. 
In 40 BC, 40 years before Christ, Herod the Great made a trip to Rome seeking a Roman appointment as king over the regions of Israel. And then again in 4 BC, his son Archelaus made a similar journey to argue his case against his half-brother Antipas. Now, I want to give us a short history lesson to give us some context, okay? So, Herod the Great was granted the title the King of the Jews in 40 BC by the Roman Senate. At that time, there was already a king on the throne in Israel and his name was Antigonus. And Antigonus was backed by the Parthians who were enemies of the Romans. Now, they had conquered and they had taken Jerusalem. And so, Herod was put to flight and this is when he went to the Romans. And the Romans themselves were looking for a strong, resolute leader who could counter the threat of the Parthians and to retake Jerusalem. This is the political scenario. So, Herod was appointed by the Romans. He was sent back with an army to retake Jerusalem. And it took three years, including a very bloody war, before Herod took Jerusalem in 37. BC, and then he became king, okay? Now, incidentally, in the case of his son, Archelaus, who did likewise, he was bad. The Romans did not give him a kingship. Instead, they banished him and uh, dethroned him, okay? So when Jesus told this parable, let me say this, there is no doubts that the hearers would immediately connect the parable to those events that were involving Herod. And likewise, we need to make the same connection for this parable to evoke the, the same sentiments, the right sentiments, and an understanding of this parable. So let me point us the scenario, okay? The nobleman is leaving. He's going to another country. He's seeking to receive an appointment of authority. We are told that the citizens hated him and they sent a delegation after him saying that we will not have this man reign over us. In other words, the outcome is far from certain. The nobleman could come back with an appointment or he may not have come back with an appointment. Nonetheless, he calls his servants, he gives them each one pound, which is the equivalent of a hundred days of wages, and he asks them to do business, not until he comes back, but he, he asks them to do business because he is coming back. He's giving them the assurance, he's asking them to believe him that he is coming back. He's asking them to extend their faith. You see, politics is volatile in the first century as it is today. Amen? Think about this. Look at the American elections or look at our own local elections. You don't know what the result is going to be like until the results comes out. Amen? The, the best political pundits can never predict how an outcome is going to be. Things can, and especially in the first century, things can change rapidly within a short time. Now for these servants, there is a risk to what they're being told to do. They were being asked to do business in the name of the nobleman while he is absent, trusting that he will actually get an appointment when he comes back. Now this involves a lot of risk. This involves some form of persecution by those people who already were against the nobleman. To come up up front to trade in the name of the nobleman would be to declare the conclusion of the political flux before it is concluded. Now, if you were part of that, of that company of servants, let me tell you this, it would be much safer to just bury the money and wait and see if the nobleman does win the right to rule and then, you know, say, oh, uh, I'm for you, I'm for you. Why would you openly align yourself to the nobleman before the matter had been 
concluded. You see, the purpose of this parable now then becomes clear. Jesus is going to the Father and he's, and we are being left behind as his servants and his representatives. We are each given resources that we are to utilize in his name. We are to cast out demons in his name. We are to preach in his name. We are to declare that we are his followers on the basis that Jesus promises that he will return. There are systems in this world that doesn't want Jesus to return. There will be doubts that will be, that will be placed amongst us. There will be persecution. And yet we are to openly align ourselves with Christ. We are to trade. We are to go out and do the works of the kingdom openly in His name. Amen. And all this time trusting His promise that He is coming back. Amen. You see, the parable is not about stewardship. It's not, but instead, it is about choosing our side and making it known publicly. This parable isn't about resources. This parable is about loyalty. It is about standing in the midst of a hostile environment, facing persecution, cancellation, ridicule, rejection, and yet boldly declaring, you know what, as for me and my house, we have chosen to follow Jesus Christ. Amen? That's what this parable really is about. That's what Jesus is communicating to his followers to tell them, it is time for you to declare your fealty. Who are you following? This parable is not about reprieve. It's not about relief. It's not about Jesus coming and so that we don't have to do anything about uh, anymore. But this parable is to prepare us for the most difficult season when He is absent from us. Amen? Can you see that? Can you begin to grasp how we have misunderstood this parable all along because our prevailing lens is wrong. We only see the resource. We don't understand what Jesus is really pointing out to us, right? Now the fourth and final point I want to bring to us is what's being counted. You see, the parable eventually concludes with the return of the nobleman and he does indeed receive his kingdom and authority. He then calls his servant and he wants to know what they have done with the resources that has been given to them. Now, I want to introduce you to a very complicated Greek word, okay? Because when you read this verse here, he says he want, he, that he might know how much every man has gained by trading, okay? That whole phrase, how much every man has gained by trading, is this Greek word called diapragmateo santo, okay? Whatever. I'm probably slaughtering the Greek word. I'm no Greek scholar. I do know a Greek who lives in the UK, and that's it. And, um, but essentially, this is what this Greek word means. And the primary meaning of this Greek word is how much business has been transacted. The secondary meaning is how much has been gained by the trading. Two different meanings. You see, the early Middle Eastern Bibles have always followed the first meaning, the primary meaning of this word. And the focus is on the amount of transactions done and not the amount of profits that has been gained. But somehow, we have now, in our English context, in our modern-day context, focused on how much has been gained instead of what's the quantity of transaction, when originally this word means how much transactions has been done. And the reason is clear because the nobleman is interested in their loyalty. Amen. He's not interested in their business skills. He's interested in the extent to which they've openly, publicly declared their fealty to him through the volume of transactions that has been done in his name. Amen. Luke 19 verse 17 says this, Well done, good servant, because you were 
faithful. You see, faithfulness cannot be measured by profitability, but it is much more akin to our loyalty. Our faithfulness is more inclined to us whether we've kept our loyalty to God. Amen? They were not being commended for being successful, but they were being commended for being faithful. You see, the yardstick that is used, you know, confirms our interpretation of this parable, that this parable isn't about stewardship. And instead, this parable is about making a bold stand for Christ in His absence. This parable, think about it, consider the reward, okay? The reward is more work and more responsibility. Amen? Sometimes we look at the reward, we think, oh, have authority over 10 cities, you know? And we think, wow, that's fantastic, what a great reward. Have you ever led a cell group of 10 people? Have you led a cell group of 20 people? Honestly, who wants authority over 10 cities, right? And think about this. If profitability was the yardstick, then the appropriate reward would be a pay raise. Now, any of you who are in a sales kind of job or, you know, if you produce more profitability, guess what? They will give you a pay raise, a bonus, a vacation, something to reward you, more rest. But the thing is this, if faithfulness is the focal point, then the reward looks quite different. The the faithful does not look for a reward whereby they don't have to do anything anymore. The faithful, the reward they're seeking is to serve the master even more. Amen? If faithfulness is the thing that you're pursuing and you are looking for reward, let me tell you, the thing that you want to be rewarded is is to be closer to Jesus. Amen? Amen? And so even in the reward, we're being pointed to this point of a re-looking of this parable. And this must reframe the way in which we read this parable. And accordingly, we need to then come and ask ourselves, what is God saying to us? I believe this parable has much more applicability for us today than for the people who heard it firsthand 2,000 years ago. Because when they heard it, the noblemen were still with them. Christ was still with them. But today, Christ has returned to the Father and He is coming back. We are in that seasons of the absence of the noblemen. There are enemies of the gospel. There is going to be worldviews and there's going to be things that's going to come against our faith and we struggle. And not only that, we have an enemy that is spiritual, that's by the name of Satan, who comes against us to steal, to kill, to destroy us. And in the absence, the physical absence of Christ, you know, we need to make a stand boldly in this world to say, hey, I have chosen to follow Jesus Christ. Amen? This is the application. This is what God is saying. God is not talking, He's not measuring how profitable in in what you're doing. He's asking you, how many people are you sharing Christ with? He's asking you, how are you making and bearing witness for Him? Let me tell you this, when you go to heaven, I can assure you this, God is not gonna ask you, how many people did you convert? You know why I know that? Because the Bible says this, that one souls, one waters, but God gives the increase. Only the Holy Spirit can bring people into that conversion experience. But God's going to ask you, how bold were you? How many times did you share about me to the people around you? That's what He's going to ask. It's the volume of the transactions. It's the volume, the number of times in which you bore witness for the Lord. 
Amen. Think about some of the missionaries who went to some of the hardest place and they died not seeing hardly any conversions, but the people that came after them, they saw the revival and they saw the conversions. Does that mean the missionary who laid his life down died in vain because he didn't have profitability? That's not how the kingdom of God measures these things. I want to conclude by saying this. A British journalist once asked Mother Teresa, how she kept going, knowing that she could never meet the needs of all the dying in the streets of Calcutta. And she replied this, I am not called to be successful, I am called to be faithful. She understood that she's not going to be judged by how much poverty is eradicated on her watch. She's going to be judged by exactly what God has called her to do. Amen. I want to invite us to stand to our feet because I want us to respond. Amen. And you know, I think that this makes it much easier for us to grasp what God is calling us to do. God is not calling us to be successful. God is calling us to be faithful. And we have to be faithful to what the Lord calls us to do. I don't care if you put something out and there are only five people that like the post. You know, you share about testimony, about healing, and only 10 people like your post. That's not what it matters. What matters is that you're faithful to share the testimony. Amen. Amen. And we just need to keep doing what is right, what God is calling us to do. You see, there is something about this parable I believe God wants to bring to us. There's something about what is the season that we are in. God is calling us to step out boldly and to bear witness for Him. Amen. I want to invite us just to bow our heads and close our eyes. And I want to just ask Bob, you know, to lead us in one song and we're just going to worship the Lord. Amen. And, you know, and there are a few things, I want to say this, there are a few things I, I really feel like God wants to do in our midst right now. I feel like God is calling for us to consecrate ourselves and says, Lord, you know what? I'm not going to bury my faith. I'm not going to hide it. I'm not going to wrap it up in a handkerchief and wait for the outcome to be told before I will stand out publicly. I really believe with all my heart God is calling every one of us to stand publicly for Him. And I don't mean for us to be obnoxious. I don't mean for us to be nasty. I don't mean for us to be an irritant and to be annoying to the people around us. But we can always say and we can make a stand. Can, can I just confess this to you guys? And you know, bow your heads, don't look at me, okay? Because I'm going to confess, okay? <laughs> you know, I... I've been in full-time 22 years. I've been a pastor for about 15 years. And when I go out to places, when I travel, when I go, and sometimes, you know, people ask me, what do you do? I want to tell you this. Honestly, many times, I don't want to tell people I'm a pastor. I feel like the moment I tell people I'm a pastor, people are going to have, people are going to judge me. What on earth is that? You know, people are going to withdraw from me. People are going to think that I'm, they'll think lesser of me they'll belittle me. There's always this sense of a stigma. But there's a point in my life, in my life I said to myself, you know what, I don't care. God's called me to be a pastor and as long as it's not a security risk where I'm going into a nation where I cannot say that, I will always publicly tell people that I am a pastor and I serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And it's not about being obnoxious. It's not about being nasty. It's about being bold in who you are to tell people, hey, 
I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And I'm, I believe this, I believe that some of us, if you just step up and be public and say, I'm a follower of Jesus, God's going to open doors for you. God's going to give you opportunities. And God's going to change circumstances in your life. Amen. Don't be ashamed of the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't be ashamed of Him. Be willing to be publicly aligned with Christ. Amen. And I feel this again so strongly that as we, as we stand in this time, as we just sing this song, you, you're going through a very difficult time in your life. Maybe in your business, maybe in your work, I don't know. There's something that you're really struggling with. And I really believe that today, the name of Jesus is going to triumph over every situation that is there in your life. Amen. And I, I know that that's nothing to do with the message, but I just want to flow with what I feel the Holy Spirit is saying. I really believe that God wants to give victory. God wants to show up in some of our lives. Amen. He wants to show to you that He is good. He loves you. He wants you to taste and know that He is good. Amen. You know, and, and as, as we taste, as we know Him, then we can stand and we can testify and say, this is what Jesus has done for me in my life. Amen. And let's just worship the Lord. I'm going to ask Bob just to lead us as we worship the Lord. You've just listened to a production of Cornerstone Community Church. Please note that all unauthorized reproduction, distribution, or sale of the recording is prohibited. For permission to reproduce or distribute the sermon, please write into mail at cscc.org.sg. We hope that you have been blessed.